Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. You can find out a little bit more about that at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it is my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Jonas Rinder. Jonas is the co-founder and CEO of Nomono, the Norwegian company working to simplify the recording and management of immersive broadcast quality field audio so that podcasters and journalists can focus on the stories being told. After three years developing an integrated hardware software platform, Nomono's first product, Sound Capsule, is about to launch and it looks the business. Before Nomono, Jonas was the COO and then CEO of Hudley, the Norwegian technology company that creates AI-infused smart meeting room cameras. Winding the clock back to the beginning of his career, Jonas started working for the telecommunications company Ericsson as a product design engineer in the mid-1990s. He then went on to work as a project engineer at Sony and then as a project manager at Volvo. In 2007, Jonas's career really hit its stride when he went to work for Tanberg, the Norwegian telecommunications provider, as the director of R&D. During his time there, the business was acquired by Cisco for 3.3 billion US dollars, and Jonas became a director of engineering at Cisco and a board member of Cisco Systems Norway. Wanting to scratch the entrepreneurial itch, Jonas left Cisco in 2014 to become the co-founder and CEO of Electric White. The business was acquired by Akano, which was then in turn sold to Cisco for $700 million in 2016. Not a bad result. Jonas holds a Bachelor of Science in Product and Industrial Design from Christianstad University and a Master of Science in Integrated Product Design from the KTH Royal Institute of Technology. As a design-led technology company founder, CEO, and investor, I've been looking forward to exploring Jonas's story with him today. Jonas, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brennan. Happy to be here. It's very, very good to have you here, and I did enjoy preparing for today's conversation and having a look at Nomono and also back through your career history. It's been a very impressive track record you've had there, and I'm very much looking forward to exploring that with you now. I did want to start, though, with something that I noticed about you in one of the interviews that I was watching, and it was on the Life on Mars podcast, and you were actually sitting in your car now, you live in Norway, which is a very beautiful and rugged country. And the thing that I noticed in that video episode of that podcast was that your roof racks, you have to kind roof racks on your car. And that spoke to me of someone who leads a fairly active lifestyle. Just how much use do those roof racks get? <laughs> That's a very good catch. I'm the first, you're the first one to comment that. So I'm impressed. <laughs> No, yeah, I have those on, and that's for cost for my stand-up paddle boards. Just how, up here in the north, there are not much big waves. There are some, so there are some wave surfers in in the Nordic Arctic of Norway. Uh, but I'm not that keen on that super cold water, so I'd rather be standing on a stand-up paddle board. So they get used like in summertime. Probably they get used like two times per week. Those the kind racks there. So it's a good way of keeping fit, especially the upper body, because I do a lot of mountain biking as well. So you got to kind of 
get the full body workout combining stand-up paddleboard with uh, with some mountain biking. I was going to say you're not skipping leg day, so that's good to hear. <laughs> no, I'm not skipping. But I'm skipping the gym. It's too boring for me to be inside <laughs> training. I need to be outside and get some salt water in their face or some dirt. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I definitely hear you. <laughs> I do a bit of running and I prefer trail yeah. to road. It's just that much more interesting. And you have to, I feel like you have to engage your mind and your senses more than you do if you're just plodding along on the concrete. I totally agree. It gets a bit boring when they say on the concrete when you're running. And trail running for me is also a good uh, way of practicing for the winter. So especially behind my house here in the, in the, in the hills, in the forest, usually kind of take maybe the lazy way of walking up, but then running and usually running outside the trails as well, because you get a good training of both balance and pretty aggressive for the legs. Kind of similar when you do off-piste uh, skiing in the winter. So I'm also, as you're a big fan of running in the forest as well. We're in the mountains. You're clearly a man of adventure, and I suspect that your professional track record and career speaks a little bit to that as well, and I definitely want to go into that. But just before we dive into all things business and Nomono, I wanted to talk to you about something else that I observed in that interview, which was you said you actually said something, so not an observation, something you said that I thought was interesting. You said... I have survived. I've done a lot of crazy things, jumping off cliffs and stuff like that. And you just said it so, you know, in a relax, such a relaxed fashion, almost like, oh, I just jump off cliffs, no big deal. But what on earth, what on earth compels you to do things like jumping off cliffs? You know, where does the need to satisfy whatever you're trying to satisfy with that activity, where does that come from? So I think it's like, you don't just start jumping off cliffs. It's like a step by step. Uh, you push it yourself, you push it to the limit. And uh, when you get into that, this is also the way how you kind of learn, learn a lot about yourself, uh, learning how you can kind of control things. And I think I mentioned also in that interview about, you know, uh, what I call calculated risk. Uh, so, and finding that balance for me is about the adrenaline, uh, getting that sense of the rush. Uh, so I think that's where it comes from. And, uh, you always try to maybe sometimes find an answer why I'm so intrigued by that. And kind of that's become a big part of my life, uh, especially on, on, on my private time. I think it also relates a little bit to my background from my father and my grandfather. So my father, for example, he was building his own sailing boats and was racing them and was doing pretty good both in the World Cup and etc. So I think he got a lot of uh, adventure from that. And my grandfather... He was a fighting pilot uh, during the Second World War. And at that time, he was flying prototype planes because they didn't have the time during the war to really, like we do today, with all the different builds we tested, we do an MVP and what have you, and quality assurance. At that time, in the Second World War, they would just you know get the plane assembled together and go flying there. So I think, at least myself, trying to find a red thread going back into my own kind of DNA, uh, um, or maybe just finding an answer to why. So I think that's, but yeah, it's it's, uh, it's a need for speed and thrills. But as I mentioned for you, it's on this kind of fine balance where you're not risking your life. You always risk your life in some terms, but at least do a bit of, should I say, uh, humble calculation that it's not too much risk. But I think we humans are different there as well. Uh, what kind of interests us and yeah. So I just like to challenge myself, I think is the, is the key thing here. Tell me about your your grandfather. Was he someone that when you were growing up that you spent a lot of time with or was this relayed to you through story, stories from your father about what his adventures were like during the war? 
No, I was lucky enough. He got like 92 years old. So we got some time together. And, and what I learned from him, he was a really good storyteller. He was really good on kind of going back and telling in details from these adventures. And the funny thing is, when he started to talk about the stories from the Second World War, they all started uh, kind of similar stories. So you thought he was telling the same story over and over again. But what you realize as soon as it comes into the action in his story, from what he kind of experienced, it's always different things. And it was, so he was also planning to write the book, but he wasn't too fan of computers. Or he, so this is pretty funny. Back in the days, he was on the bleeding edge of fighter pilot or planes, the latest of technology. But then you fast forward, being an old man, computer wasn't like really his thing. So unfortunately, he didn't get to write that book, uh, which is a pity because uh, at least I'm one of those who has been lucky enough to hear all the stories uh, from, from that time. It's really interesting that you, you tell that story about your grandfather and also how he wasn't able to capture and full his stories in terms of document them in a way that other people could uh, read and consume and understand them. Yet uh, there's a parallel to my own history there with my grandfather also being a World War II veteran and um, one of his friends, a photographer, actually wanted to document some of his stories. But by that stage, I think my grandfather passed away when he was 86 and this would have mm. been around when he was 80, the Alzheimer's had, had started to kick in and so therefore there wasn't 100% confidence that the stories being told would be recalled uh, in, you know, in, in the most accurate fashion. Uh, but it's it's so precious. It's a precious uh, personal memory to have those stories of those those older gentlemen that lived through quite a f fantastical time, uh, quite a horrifying time as well. There's so many stories, and I mean, after the Second World War, uh, my grandfather wanted to help uh, the Red Cross, so he moved with his whole family, and this was back in uh, in 1948 uh, into to Africa, to Ethiopia. Uh, and he was uh, helping them re-establish uh, everything around uh, landing strips for airplanes and what have you. And he was working for and together with uh, Holly Selassie at the time. But just imagine at that time, they were, I mean, <laughs> taking your family and you, uh, I'm not sure how many stops they need to do with the plane to refill just to go from Sweden to Ethiopia and Africa. Things today that we take like, we can almost fly pretty far. So it's a pretty cool story. And if you're going to buy a car at the time, you know, you need to go to Volkswagen in Germany to buy the car and then drive it back. So, I mean, still continue this kind of storytelling, how you kind of... So I think, yeah, there's a lot of adventure in, uh, in, in the family's history, so to say. So, I, and I kind of envy him because to get into the same kind of experience today, I think it's, I mean, people have almost done everything. People have been all around the world. So, so... That's going a little bit back to what I told you. For me, I do my kind of local adventures. So that's where I live, where I live here in Norway. I got the fjord with the water. You can do stand a paddleboard and sailing. And then I have the hills and the forest behind me where I can do mountain biking, trail running, or in the winter. This is pretty fun. Like yesterday, I was doing some powder skiing just behind my house here. So you, you get these <laughs> kind of micro adventures. And I think I have kind of, kind of sell it for that for now, at least, uh, compared to my grandfather's. Uh, amazing uh, adventures and as yours as well it's really great to hear that uh, you have a similar uh, experience as well with your with your grandfather that's uh, mm, nice impressive 
You're a man of few words, at least on your LinkedIn bio, which simply says, I like to build, I like to go fast. And having listened to you tell those stories of your father and your grandfather, you know, your father building and racing yachts at speed and and obviously the amazing adventures that your grandfather had with testing out these uh, very prototype planes, there's a thread there, 100%. You're also only 45 and 46 years old or 46 years old. I think you may have just had a birthday. (laughs) <laughs> That's very true. Thanks for saying. Is it forty-five or forty-six? <laughs> for, thanks for saying only forty-six. I feel like it's you know it's getting close to fifty now, so you're getting up. But yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, it was yeah in the beginning of December. I'm approaching forty. I've got a couple couple more years to go, and uh, yeah, so I know, I know what you mean. But you are still a very young man, and you've actually had uh, quite a busy career you know you've sold or been involved in the uh, building up and the acquisitional sale of three businesses at this age so you've been doing both of those things you've been building and you've been going pretty fast as far as what most people would look at you from the outside in and say wow you know you've really put some runs on the board as we say here you've said previously and I want to quote something here and I wonder if there's a link back to what we've been discussing about adrenaline as well you've said in the past pain fosters creativity I think pain is the best way of learning so is that just an observation of yours that you've had as you've gone through life and the pursuits that you've undertaken or is this more speaking to a personal operating philosophy that you have adopted? I think it's kind of both. And I can draw parallels both what you do in your spare time with different sport activities. Because back again, when you're getting close to the edge, you hurt yourself. So I just got to take one good example is, for example, with uh, with mountain biking. I was doing BMX as a kid. And, I, I, you know, you fall over a lot because you test two things and Maybe you're going to impress the cute girl in the neighbor house as well. You know, you're going to go back wheeling and then they crash. And, but, you know, over the years, you kind of learn a technique how to fall. So on mountain bike, it was like you roll over and just roll, roll, roll. And it, I never broken anything. But I mean, so I think the first place with that is you get some pain, but you learn through that. And you learn technique how to behave. And if you look into the working life, uh, similar things, you know. Uh, because most important thing for me, building products, teams, and company is speed. So setting up the culture in the company in a way that we always can keep the speed. So trying to avoid to have too many meetings, too much process, too much bureaucracy, and what have you. Uh, but getting into that can also be painful because sometimes there's something slipping between the chairs. And when you do a company, that can have an impact on the financial situation of the company, that you miss something, you need to do, build another prototype, it's going to cost you, delays you. So, so from that, I think also you learn when things kind of slip between chairs or you miss something because you want to keep the high pace at high speed as well. I understand you had a fairly painful situation uh, with at Tamburg working on immersive telepresence rooms and you were demoing a prototype, uh, maybe a prototype that you'd you'd gone a little bit too fast on. Yeah. What's the story? What's the story there? <laughs> uh, that's a good one. That's a very good example as well. So... We were building the first immersive telepresence room, uh, which means the product was the whole room, including the walls, the lightning, and, and what have you. But unfortunately, when we had a very big customer visiting us to see this prototype, uh, it catched on fire. Uh, and that goes back maybe to high speed. So one of our engineers didn't have had time to have enough uh, isolation between the PCB circuit board uh, and the aluminum chassis. Uh, so when the customer was testing the touch screen, 
he was pressing too hard, so to say. So he pressed the PCB behind the display through the cardboard that was used <laughs> to the to the aluminum chassis, and that to make a start of a small fire. So we learned something from that. <laughs> Maybe don't rush it too much or take shortcuts to get them in time for the for that really important customer. And as I mentioned, though, you know. Uh, two years later, I have bought several of these kits, and it was and, and this is pretty cool. It was a three hundred thousand dollar product, and then I gotta realize that you know installing that in New York, for example, it's gonna be another three hundred dollars, three hundred thousand dollars on just refurbishing and creating the room where to put the product. So I'm still kind of impressed by you know looking back to that time, uh, the fantastic salespeople we had that was selling this, but also the customer who wanted to have these kind of telepresence, immersive telepresence back in, back in the days. This situation is a good analogy for the risk that is inherent in going fast. You know, we, we, we talked about the fact that you have to learn how to roll because you are going to hurt yourself if you're pushing yourself close to your limits. And there's been some commentary about certain technology companies where going fast may not have led to some of the best outcomes for a broad set of stakeholders. And while we don't need to specifically speak to that, I am curious to understand through your experience building the Mono, which is no longer, it's not just a physical uh, installation, right? This is something that is AI infused. So there, there are other factors to consider as you build out the technology and what the technology might lead to. How do you balance going fast which you need to in a startup because you have limited uh, runway and you need to get things done and you need to try and find market product market fit as quickly as you can. And the potential broader implications of the technology that you're building, how do you weigh, if at all, those against each other and how does that affect your decision-making if that is something that you do? Mm, that's a very good a very good question. So thing though, you want to keep speed, high speed, uh, push on but what you also learn is that you need to do testing and verification so that's a very very important part of this so we talk about test driven development so that goes for the software side and that's super important uh, in terms of creating very high stability and quality of your software and that links of course to what is the most important is the, uh, the end user experience of your solution so they experience stability and quality. Also on the on the design, on the UX side, also important with the testing. So using user researchers, doing questionnaires, being out with the customers and the end users, and testing early prototypes. And that is also a solution of keeping high speed because I also learned from experience, you, you shouldn't sit and work too long on your product or your solution before you start testing on actual users. Uh, and I can use myself an example because I remember as a, as a kid developing uh, designs, I wanted to kind of finalize the design first and kind of show it a bit proud, like, look what I've done. I hate it when somebody came and interrupted me with doing a design work. They went like, should you do this? Should you do that? Because there was like this, but well, you know, over the years, fast forward 20 years, what you learn is so important. You know, with the first concept sketch, whatever you have, idea, just test it, get feedback. 
And then you can, of course, analyze that feedback and start to kind of do adjustment. And by doing that, you shorten development time. By doing that, you're keeping the speed and time to market. You see so many times you work on things too long, you come to the market, you come to the news, and they go like, yeah, nice, but why should I use this? Or how should I use this? Or And I think I'm, I usually talk a lot about, you know, when you add something to, to people's life, it should be something that reduces other things. And I think it's so important for us who work with technology and product development. We need to keep that in mind because sometimes when you work with something, you can get into the, uh, the possibilities you can do with the technology. So I think AI, as you mentioned, is also a good example. How far should we stretch and work on the AI and the algorithms? Because we've got to keep in mind whatever we do with those, it has to be something that is understandable, but also help uh, the purpose for the end user. I think Nomon is a good example there. Because uh, we do recordings of audio. Uh, we also, with our own sound capsule, capture metadata, which makes our AI that we have in the cloud for the moment gets a very good understanding about what to talk about, where to talk about the scenario. We do that from a purpose to enhance the audio quality, but also the spatial audio effect when you put the listen inside the story. But you also got to be careful with all this data, what you do with it, because it has to be a solution to the end user that gives them value. That they understand we could leapfrog now with the technology we have but we also sense that the people we talk to and presented for they're not really there yet so one example is just using the ai for for a podcast recording uh, where we can take away all the pauses the the mispresentation of things or you different sounds when you start thinking the humming and etc so we could kind of do a lot with the ai in terms of improve it for the end user but the question is also this is a balance here to also take the take the user on a journey. So back to these stepping stones, back to this learning. So I think that's, uh, yeah, I'll open up for more questions because I can, I can continue on a long monologue here because it's like... Oh, you're, you're clearly very passionate about the product I am, and you've I am, I certainly am. thought a lot about what that experience should be and there's a number of points and what you've said that I could hop off to. And I do want to cover product strategy and also human factors with you. I suppose what I want to do first is just take a seat on the balcony, if you like, and zoom out a little bit and consider the implications of the data that you're capturing. You're going to be processing data of conversations that are occurring across the globe, uh, assuming that the product will be successful, and let's hope that it is. And you're going to have the responsibility, I suppose, of being a custodian of that data. Now, I've heard data described as the new oil, and it's pretty clear that capturing a rich data set can enable many future possibilities for products and for companies potential partnerships, other things like that become uh, viable when you've got a rich data set. And so what I'm, what I'm asking you, I suppose, is thinking about the second or third bounces of the ball as far as where you project the company to be and the types of data and products and services it may have in three, five, ten years, what consideration, if any, or safeguards have you put in place to ensure that the data that is being captured is being used in a wholesome, I don't know if that's the right word, uh, but that doesn't run afoul of any personal ethics you may hold or that uh, society may expect from companies that are capturing data like this. 
Yeah, so for us, it's very important around uh, what we talk about GDPR and privacy. It's all encrypted. Uh, and for us, the, the data is anonymous. And that's also the good thing back to the to the AI. It's the AI who kind of uses data and analyze it. We, as company, we don't have any insight to what's being recorded. We can't listen into it either. So it's just, uh, for us, it's anonymous data that the AI can process for us. And I mean, for us, once again, I mean, the key thing here is to give end user humans what we call superhero powers in terms of improving audio and focusing on that. So I think for us, it's, that's a clear goal. And we're also pretty clear on messaging that out as well. And I think that's so important today. So let's come back to the time before Nomono existed when it was just an idea you were a CEO of Hudley, which is a successful Norwegian technology business that I mentioned in your intro, and you left that role behind. So what was the insight that made you think that, you know, this is something, Nomono is something that I'm willing to stake my reputation on and perhaps dedicate the next five or so years to building? For me, I, I like to start building things from from scratch when my co-founder Auden who also is a former colleague of mine uh, he has been researching for three years on how to capture spatial audio and you know meeting him in his lab down in there was a classic one you know down in the basement having this Frankenstein looking thing you know super techy and they go like this is awesome <laughs> because what I kind of sense user Earl on something but he has kind of studied the technology macro trends. And from his perspective, who is, from my experience, maybe top 10 in the world on microphone array and microphone technology, uh, he had foreseen the spatial audio will come. And that goes back to 360 video, you know, all the XR, like AR and VR, uh, the way we as human will consume media going forward. When he kind of showed the technology was working on, there was not really a business case around. There was technology how to capture it, but what to use it for. And the first assumption was to use it for 360 video. But at the time, and still is, no big market for 360 video. So we started to look into what other pieces could be valuable. And that's where at least I saw the opportunity to be very early on a large surfing wave in terms of spatial audio because it all made sense when we talk about that almost now four years ago and we got some proof point along the way which we of course are happy when you're betting so early on technology like for example spatial audio at the time because at the time there were no spatial audio in your iphone or airpods there were no dull buttons but for us it was such a proof point when Apple announced that they're going to support spatial audio. So we had those kind of proof points along the way. But honestly, for me, it was, I was seeing the same thing as Auden, my co-founder, was presenting for me. And that goes to my own experience of consuming uh, audio. I've been working in the video conferencing industry for a long time. And, you know, we always talked about audio was the most important part of video conferencing. Because if the audio breaks, there's nothing. Video can break. That's okay, as long as you have, have the audio. Uh, and also me personally, also a big interest in, in 3D. Uh, I've been doing 3D design back in the days uh, before you got your 3D Studio Max tools, et cetera. So uh, those things kind of just align. And that's uh, for me was uh, an opportunity I didn't want to miss. But I think it's a back to what you mentioned about uh, risk taking. Because why would you leave? I mean, Hudley, a fantastic company. 
fantastic team. Be a part of Journey has been a very good learning for me. But you know, leave all those guys and girls behind and jump onto this new unknown territory outside the video conference industry. You go in into the media industry. Maybe foolish, I don't know. We'll see. But at least there was some risk taking there. And just you know, seeing something in your in your crystal ball there about the future. I think up to now, at least we have the proof point we needed. Uh, to continue building the company and of course also raising capital when we start working with the solution realize pretty fast like just the most basic audio recording today the workflow about capturing good audio is kind of broken and it hasn't happened much in the last 10 or 20 years there are some applications like the one we use now like riverside which is really really awesome uh, and there are some other tools you can use as well uh, but if you look on the combined thing or combining, especially on the preference side, uh, hardware together with software together with cloud, there, there, and there still is no solution except Nomona from that perspective. So what we do now is we connect audio to the cloud uh, seamlessly. And with our physical device, there's just one button to push to capture spatial audio. I think uh, the listeners should try to do that themselves or at least go on to the internet and try to find a solution how to capture spatial audio and you will soon come into a territory looking like the frankenstein lab equipment i saw back in the days where you need a very advanced ambisonic microphone you need some other wireless love microphones you need a eight no sorry 12 channel recorder connected to these ones and then you need a lot of sd cards and you need to set up an environment that you have full control over uh, the wind noise, acoustics, and what have you, uh, and, and batteries. And then you're going to do an audio capture, which is very unnatural with all microphones. And then you're going to get those files into some kind of tool and try to mix those 12 channels into something. And you get microphone bleeding. So I'm not going to paint the full complex picture here, but it's really, really complex. And what we have done is taken all that together with Alden's um, patents and innovation just pack it into a, a, a simple box, so to say. Uh, and you, with just one button to push, you can do this. And then this is in the field. So we replace the need for a studio because we have full control over what is being said, but also what's the, what's the ambient sound. The ambient sound can be something to uh, get some more color into your story, or it can define as noise and you just want to remove it. And the cool thing with our solution, you can do that after the fact. So you do a recording, and then afterward, you can decide, do I want the ambient or do I want to adjust it? Is it too? Yeah. So that's a long answer to your question, but it's, uh, it's, it's uh, taking the risk because you see something. And it's so compelling. You just want to jump on it. And it's easy for people to look at entrepreneurs and product offerings that they see out there like Nomono, which currently has a price point, I think, of around 3000 USD and to poke holes in that, right? You can sit there and you can go just like previous podcast uh, uh, hosts have done. They say, you know, I can't really see how this is going to have mass, mass appeal. And I believe even TechCrunch wrote an article about the price point and then gave you the benefit of the doubt, though, off the back of your track record. Mm. You know, and there's famous examples also in the technology industry. For, you know, the one that I'm thinking of is Steve Ballmer uh, scoffing at the iPhone yeah. launch. Yeah. You know, it doesn't even have a keyboard. You know, just just couldn't see couldn't see the platform play that Steve Jobs was putting in place at Apple at the time. Mm -hmm. I am interested, though, in the challenge that entrepreneurs 
and anyone who's passionate about inventing or creating something, whether it's a business or a piece of technology, have with maintaining some form of objectivity about the business case, about the prospects for the product. Now, clearly, timing is important in a marketplace as well, and I got the sense that what you were describing there you felt that the stars were aligning regarding the technology, the support from big companies like Apple to put it into their existing hardware, the trends around podcasting, all of these things start to line up. You've talked in the past about your approach to risk-taking, and I'm just going to quote you now. You've said, I don't take on stupid risk, and that is back to understanding your capabilities as a leader, as a person, but also the capabilities of the team you want to build, the capabilities that can come from the team to take on this challenge or opportunity. So how do you know, thinking about Nomona specifically, how do you know if something is starting to look like a stupid risk? Is this something that is obvious from the start or is this something that you continually have to poll yourself on and check in and just make sure that things aren't starting to, you know, go the wrong direction and you're falling victim to sunk cost as a result? So hiring people uh, with the right mindset uh, and the skills. I learned over the years that the right mindset is the most important piece. Skills you can obtain or you can learn uh, as, as you move along. Uh, that's the key thing. And then to give those people as much uh, freedom as possible and responsibility. Uh, and by doing that, you ensure that you have a team that is capable of building their own culture. And then you have to make sure they are good on collaborating with each other and different uh, you know, across the company as well. But then you also, in my role, need to do check-ins. Uh, you need to follow up. But most important is, especially as, as an early founder and a CEO, is being clear on the story around the company, building together the objectives, uh, the vision, the mission. I think that's that's the kind of, I wouldn't say, I think it's easier for a founder starting from scratch building this store together with the team and being motivated by that. Because I think that's the key thing. I take my risk going into this, but the other people take their risk as well. And we take different risks, but we still take risk in doing this. Because they are, I think from the outside, they could look, I'm not sure, but it maybe look easy because usually you show the positive results. You know, you're progressing, you get reviews, you get, you know. Uh, but I don't, I don't think people who hasn't done this journey before realize how many factors, how many risks you are taking and how many challenges there is. Uh, I will not kind of go through them all here right now, but those are the ones back again, you need to balance. So you take a lot of risk and there's a risk on technology, on the business side and the financial side and people and what have you, but then you need to balance and you need to get this kind of sense of feeling to always work on the top priorities at all time. But they also need to be linked to the biggest story of the company you're building. And the key thing with that story is the value you give to your end user. But there's so many threats there. There's, I mean, the world has been changing dramatically over the last three years, so to say. And building a company through those phases where you have component crisis, you have war in Europe, uh, you have all crazy things going on. You cannot plan for that. That's things that happen. 
But that goes back to the people they hire, the culture you're building, the story you're building together with them, the, and the vision you have. The good thing with the world being has been over the last three years, if you really get to stress test what you're building and how it's progressing. Uh, I imagine you also got to stress test yourself and your team because you started a mono, I believe in 2019. So that was before correct. COVID arrived. Yeah. And the, the premise of the, at least the initial product is recording audio mm. together mm. in a physical space. And I know all about this because I launched my UX lab the month before COVID arrived, which is all again, it's about having designers and product people in a physical space. Yeah. So my timing, my timing was terrible, <laughs> like the worst, the worst timing, but it's all sunk costs yeah. and there's nothing I could have done to have prevented that. But I was wondering in terms of your mindset through that time, you know, you've sunk your own money into this. You've raised raised investor uh, money and funds as well. You've brought people on board, and then COVID turns up. Were there ever moments where you got home and you poured yourself a glass of wine or a beer or whatever it is, a glass of water maybe, and you just thought to yourself, "Is this going to work out? Is there going to be light at the end of this tunnel? Will the world ever go back to being together in a physical place?" We used to say, "If failing isn't an option." But I think it goes to mindset-wise as well. No, I never thought that. I do, though, have what I talk about, the kind of healthy paranoia. And that goes a bit in a competition, but also what you mentioned here, you know, what will happen with the world going forward. But it's also back to take it day by day, work and plan from what you know. Of course, you do some thinking about the future. But I think for us who's been through now those last three years, we just realized there are some things you can't really plan for. So, uh, and, you know, for us, you know, the, the solution is a field device is supporting four people in the same room, but you can flip it to the positive side as well with the COVID because the microphones we have, they're very clean in the design. Uh, so they're very easy to clean in terms of uh, bacteria and, and, and these things, but also you, people can sit with a distance between each other because they're up to 20 meters and it's not often you sit for people 20 meters from each other. Fine. But then again, uh, at least with the COVID, you can sit in the almost the same room, at least on, on, a, on a healthy distance or from that perspective. I think. But of course, it, it started, you know, uh, we, we have a, a roadmap of solution coming. The COVID kind of also helped us to foster some of those ideas. So I will not go into detail here now. It will be too early. But then again, you realize like, yeah, it's not that everybody's going to be in the same room at the same time, like you and me today. How can Nomono do something that is really compelling in this scenario? Mm. So it sounds like this is about responding to events as they unfold, a recognition that the future can't be known. Yeah. And yet being able to rely on previous scenarios that you've thought through or to be nimble enough to adapt and get your brain around the scenario that's unfolding and see how you can respond. You know, you've talked in the past about being a CEO means you have to have an open mind when building a company. There's so many things going on, though, in the world. And, and even, in, even in a co at a company level, there's lots of stuff to think about. How do you personally and specifically, how do you separate what signal from noise? Uh, that's a very good one. I think it takes some step back in terms of w why did I jump on starting the mono? 
uh, taken on that risk. Uh, I think it's back to see a vision. Do your own calculation about stars aligning. For me, there were certain stars aligning. And now they're aligning and it's getting so <laughs> compelling. I, I can't miss this chance. I just just need to jump on this. And I mean, I, worst case, well, maybe we failed. There's not an option, <laughs> but uh, fine. At least you test it. At least you learn something. Uh, but, you know, building a company with investor money and getting friends and employees and colleagues and what have you, of course, that's why I say it's not an option to fail because you take on so much uh, responsibility in that then that's back again to all the noise around you how do you find a signal in that and i think that's i think for me it's just i'm so interested in so many things i'm just coping with congesting a lot of data in in the world and through that at least for myself try to find out what could be the clear signal in the noise uh, but then i have very good friends colleagues family and other people in my network that I open and discuss with and through them get some feedback, get some direct. And I think that's pretty similar. <laughs> Back again, I, I, I've learned product development and I probably use the same thing here as well. I, I early test my concepts on people, I think, uh, in different places. And so, yeah, but I mean, interesting now was the component crisis, for example. The good thing with the Mona, yes, we have a physical product that has dependencies on component being manufacturing what have you but we also have a cloud and a software so when the component crisis came and we didn't know when and where we're going to get components because the big player was in and the prices were skyrocketing and still high but we have other legs stand on yeah we had the pneumonia cloud solution hmm. maybe we should look more into investing in that and see is that maybe the first product coming up because the hardware might be delayed we don't know how much so that's again, you know, uh, look on the options you have. Me personally, I, I like to develop portfolios of solutions, both soft and hardware. And by doing that, you also look into many different scenarios, different price points, different use cases and scenarios. So that gives an opportunity also to to adjust and balance all things that happens. If you come to a point where you need to stop something or start something else, so so I think for for Nomona it's been interesting. And back to the signal noise thinking here as well. Component crash is a good example. Okay, we have at least a software in the cloud. So if if the worst would have happened, it didn't. But if it would have happened, we didn't get any components. Uh, we could build a business on what we have with AI in the cloud. How intentional was that? How part of the how much part of the original strategy or thinking when you founded the company was that 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 ability to develop not just a hardware product but a hardware software mm. and platform like that you spoke to the fact that you like to do this sort of stuff is this core to the strategy was this always part of it or was this you responding to unfolding events? I mean honestly we started with um, if you look back to the technology, we started with with how to capture spatial audio. And we looked around and there were no microphones that was capable of collecting the audio in that high quality together with uh, the metadata, with the positioning. So that pushed us into do our own hardware. And that's why we call our microphones smart microphones, because they have so much under more understanding of uh, the whereabouts and surroundings and what they're doing there versus ordinary microphones. So that's one thing. Uh, so when we get into that, uh, then we start to see it doesn't help the, the, the content creator 
uh, the podcast that the user, if we only do the smart microphones, that would just solve the, the scenario when you capture the analog world in to make it digital uh, in the physical space. So when we look at the workflow, there's so many other tools they use. And from that, we started to look in, okay, how can we make sure that the, the end result from using the mono is a high quality audio file that you can use for broadcasting. That's on, you know, well, as we define it, it's the highest level in terms of audio quality. And that's where I realized that, you know, there's so many steps with SD cards, cabling, you email people, you do so much things in that process. So that's where we saw the opportunity. While we still have the files in the cloud, we can then start to enhance them, but we can also open up for collaboration around the files and then do some uh, easier, lighter kind of editing as well. And you can do comments, stuff like that. Um, so I think that goes back to what I said earlier about when you add something to people's, uh, you need to reduce the complexity. So if we just added the sound capsule, yeah, we reduce the complexity in the recording scenario, in the field, but then you still would have the issues where to store the file, where to enhance and what to do with exactly. So it goes back to kind of take control over that piece of the workflow. Well, let's talk about the human experience with the product. Now you've said about the hardware, so about sound capsule specifically, I, I believe you've said we focus on the human factor. We want to make the technology disappear. So why focus on the human factor? We, this is an industry that's full of technical specifications and advance this and advance that. Why is the human factor the thing that you've decided to focus on? And why do you want to make the technology disappear? It goes back to what you mentioned earlier as well with the bomber hammering on the iPhone, having not the keyboard. So, and, it, and we, we get some, I wouldn't say a pushback, but we get some comments. You know, you said something about the price. We think it's, it's, it's mm. we think three thousand dollars is cheap because if you, <laughs> if you compare it to what you need to buy of other equipment, that's one thing. But what you also add on on complexity, on stress on your mind, setting these things up, the time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So if you take the whole of it, it's pretty pricey and stressful. If you're going to use something else than the, the mono solution uh, today. Jonas, I want to go into that with you to segue into this briefly and feel free to bring us back to my original question. Yeah. You believing that is one thing. Convincing a marketplace to believe that is a, is a completely different thing. And I'm really curious about this, this belief you clearly hold in the product and that it's cheaper than it probably should be for the benefit it's providing to the customer. But how have you thought about the fact that the industry, as you have described, hasn't really evolved in the last 10 to 20 years? You know, why is this? Is this because people are putting up, are willing to put up with bad technology and all these headaches? Are they satisficing? Are they getting by with what they have because they don't know there's something better? But what is it that really underpins your belief that the product will find market fit and that people will see $3,000 as a price point that represents excellent value for them? I think number one, it's uh, innovators dilemma by the existing uh, hardware vendors. I used to say the world milk the cow. I think that's what they do, the big players. They get a new microphone, there's a new name on it, maybe it's a new color and new specification. Maybe it's improved a little bit on some part of the specification, and that's it. Uh, another thing is, which I respect, though, is if you look on the professionals, 
uh, it's almost like a religion around different uh, microphone manufacturers because they like the sound of the microphone, the way it captures and but also you probably have a lot of experience around that microphone. So you know how to set it up to get the best performance out of it. So you're also avoiding maybe changing it out. And we got a feedback from our solution. It, it sounds too good to be true because we take away so much of this complexity that, you know, the professionals at least have been trained or kind of learn over the, over the years. But I think that's, that's the key thing. And it, it's, I worked with big companies before as well. And I know when you have legacy products, and they bring in your revenue. It's so hard to do something that really distract yourself, uh, disrupt yourself or compete with your own revenue streams. And I think that's back to the inventor's dilemma that you know, you're kind of forced <laughs> uh, without will to continue to do what you do and you know, incrementally. So it's hard to do something revolutionary new by the big players. Uh, I think that's one thing. And the other thing is, well, you have to be nuts enough to take the risk. Yeah, <laughs> but as you say, you know, you have to drink. There's no similar product yeah. in the market, and you know, as I mentioned before as well, at least on the professional side, people have all like a religion around different microphones or even software to use, how to fix the audio and what have you. So uh, it needs to be in a studio because otherwise, I don't control the acoustics and etc. Uh, etc. Et That's what we also get to work against. Let's say we need to. I wouldn't call it have a convincing story. But that's where we kind of put our company into more a human story. You can see on the tone and voice from the moment on the web pages, on the, the, the messaging we have. And it's very different compared to the other big players, as you mentioned, you know, the specifications, data shade. And you know, if you take away the logotype, most of those companies look the same. Even the products look the same. I'm not going to mention the names, but it's, it's pretty funny. Where at least when we come in, we're distinctive different. But we're not different to be different. We're different because we focus on the human factor. Yeah, you've said you've said about this. You've said a product that is easy to use is also easy to sell, but it's also easy to understand, which is most important for the user, which is the key thing here, because if the user can't understand how to use it, it has no value. So thinking about that, what you've said previously. And thinking about what you said recently there about the religious-like following that some people in your target audience or target market have and preference for mics, things like that, the investment that they've made in wrapping their brains around the technology that's in front of them and the sense of pride that often people feel when they've mastered something that's difficult. What does that mean for your efforts to connect with people that may may not be those zealots of technology? Like, are you looking to connect with people who really just need something to work and to work simply and ignoring those technophobes, like, oh, sorry, those technophiles? How, how are you conceptualizing your target market here? As far as I understand, it's professional podcasters and broadcast journalists, but that's quite a broad definition. Like, how specific have you got with just who you believe your users, your customers will be? So content creators, storytellers is our main. When I mention professionals who are very professional in audio, audio technicians, uh, they're not our main customer. But we need to deliver a solution that performs on a level that they expect. Because the content creator, the storyteller, the podcast, the journalist, he or she might go to somebody who is professional audio 
to get recommendation or get advice. And if they come with our solution and the professional audit clinician listens to it, it also has to wow him or her. They go like, wow, hmm, interesting. It's not for me because I got my microphones, I got my studio, I got all my gear, you know. But this was really imp impressive piece of kit. The audio quality is, hmm, this is, I th yeah. So that's, you know, for ensuring quality provided by the solution. But then the design of the product, the ease of use, that is what I call for anybody, especially for them who are not techy or tech interested. When you design something that is easy to use, you also reduce so much stress for the end user. So back again, content creators, we don't know about their daily life, so to say, but we want to ensure whenever they're going to use our solution to capture audio, it's going to be as little stress as possible for them. That's why it's contained in a circle box that you can carry with you, the size of it. It fits into your backpack where you can have your other content creative tools. It might be a drone, a camera, or other things you have with you when you create content. Uh, but also the setup should be short, easy to use, one button to push. Everything is battery power. Everything is wireless. I mean, doing wireless microphones, that is also kind of some people a showstopper. Are you guys crazy? Wireless? But we do smart things about it. We do local buffering of the audio inside the microphone. So for any reason that we lose connection, that's not a risk because the audio is always being stored in the microphone. As soon as they get in range, they will start to buffer. So you have a lot of resilience in all the steps. That's nothing that the user thinks about because it happens in the background. That release also takes away some stress because it always works. It always captures my audio. And, you know, a lot of things when you're going to do recording audio, you need to give instruction to the people who's going to talk to the microphone. You need to think about where you're going because you need to prepare and bring things with you to ensure you get good or as possible. With our solution, you don't have to think about these things. You just go out, drop it in, record, and you go home. And then afterwards, you can listen to and then you can decide what do you want to keep with this or what do I want to remove. And, you know, the, <laughs> the, on top of it, it's all spatial audio ready. Nobody does that in the whole world. This is about making the technology invisible yeah. and putting that human factor in the foreground. And it's really easy to look at something that's been beautifully designed and underappreciate the investment in thinking through and evaluating what that experience is like. It's often, they're often the unsung heroes, the people that work on these products that are actually able to get them to such a place where people don't even know or aren't even stressed when they're using it. So how do you, thinking about the team at Nomono, how does the team at Nomono, how did you get to a point where you feel that you've achieved that, that you've got something that is really easy for people to use? Like what involvement, if any, did the people that you're seeking to serve through this product play in helping you to shape the product's design? Here is the interesting balance here of, of design uh, for me and the users. So it starts with, you know, you have a problem statement. There's an opportunity. You see something happening there. Uh, you analyze the user, the user behavior. You do user research, trying to understand the, for our, the content creators. Uh, and, and through that, you start to kind of conceptualize uh, a solution. And then you start to kind of find also technology that you can use for that solution. But here comes the, what I think is the most funny part, the balance of that. So what technology can you build in 
to give that user experience. But then you have the third one, that's the business of it. So you have to make sure the technology you're using is, but also time-wise with technology, you know, there might come a new chipset that you want to use, but it's too risky. There's an old chipset, but that's not performing as so. And here comes to have this cross-functional team inside your company with all the competence on software, hardware, design, and also business. So you can balance these three things because when you balance these three things, that's when you get a successful product in the end. But, you know, of course, me personally, having design background, I also have a strong belief in design because of the process you go through when you're designing things, that's where you need to balance this. And I think me personally, I think designers in general has the best likelihood of being able to get all this data in from the different and kind of find what kind of is the, the, the perfect balance there. But then we, if you look on the moon, we still take some risk, you know, in terms of having this very circular sound capsule product. It looks so different from any other microphone solution, but the circular thing comes also into being in spatial audio and what have you. But then when you open up, you start to kind of recognize a more square-shaped product uh, maybe it looks a little bit more like a microphone. At least you kind of get that connection to it. But yeah, no, it's it's, it's finding the balance that is that's the important thing here. Um, so that's yeah, cross-functional work. Well, well, let's talk about finding balance because something that keeps many product managers awake at night and also offends the sensibilities of many designers is feature creep. Mm. And it's very it's very easy to add things to your product. Yeah. Now, you've said about this in the past, you've said there's always feature creep that asks to add more. It sounds so simple, but you need to find balance. So how do you find balance? How do you weigh in one hand what your customers are asking for or what different people within the organization are asking for within the startup versus what should make it into the final product, at least for this first version. So how have you approached that tension between adding things and deciding not to add things into the product? Yeah, that starts when you start the company. Uh, and that starts when you design your first concept. Because when you just in-house starting to design a concept or start talking with the first potential users as well, you get, you, yeah, I won't call it feature creep at the time because that is kind of data you get into understanding what you're designing. But at a certain time, you need to land uh, what, what are we designing? And that's where you start to kind of get more focused and say no to things because that's not true to the original concept. But the interesting thing here is always this dynamic balance along the way anyhow. But you need to settle on something that you really believe on, that you have a strong business case around, it's doable, and it has a very good target market uh, fit for that. Uh, but then along the way, you need to adjust because there's always good ideas coming. And it could be from customers. It can be internally. But it can also be macro trends happening. Suddenly, there's a new technology arising or a competitor for that matter that you need to adjust to. So, And the way also... At least one of my key tools is product roadmap. Because I noticed, although you have a team of very skilled people, you have very experienced customers uh, and you have very good business people. It soon starts to get pretty complex pretty fast. So to be able for everybody to keep 
uh, everything in parallel and understandable, I think robot with a timeline is super important. So this is the first product. It has this MVP. These are the key features. And this is something I learned back in Cisco. So back in that time, we worked on what are the five key demo features that we can showcase this product? What are the five key demo features that we can go on stage for the 20,000 internal salespeople in Cisco and just wow them? And those five key demo features became the priorities of the product development. And those were the ones being most tested. So we know when we were doing demos, pitching this to the market, those was also the five key uh, features that will work with the most stability. And that is so important because then you prioritize other things below that for that product, for that MVP. And then as we talked about feature creeps, inputs, that's always a balance from the customer. And then you put that on the roadmap, on the timeline, on the same product, or if it's too drastically different or interesting, you can put it on a facelift of that product or it's a total new product. And then you continue to collect that. And at a certain timing, you will start to sound like we should do that facelift of the existing product to adopt to that, or we should do a new product. And that new product could be in the same market, vertical market, or it could be, you know, higher price, lower price, or it could, so that's, but that's back again. So uh, roadmap, super important and get those, let's call it feature creep into that roadmap. So two questions for you there, and I'll ask them one at a time. The first is who gets to decide in your organizations, what goes on that roadmap? So who gets to decide what those top five features should be? It's a combined. So I have a leadership team where we have CEO, CTO, uh, CPO, uh, CFO, et cetera. But it's the CPO, the chief product officer. And that's a very talented woman, uh, Silvia. I'm so lucky I hired her. She's only been in the company, I think, for three months now. Feels like she's been there for three years. She's super talented. But it's her responsibility, it's her job to keep the roadmap and be also the gatekeeper to what goes in to the backlogs or to the roadmap. Even from you and the board? Yeah, so this is the funny thing. <laughs> I'm also a very strong believer always hiring people that are better than yourself because you can't cover all the topics. And and in, for example, Sylvia, I found a CPO that I think is better than me in keeping track of roadmaps and keeping this very good dialogue with the teams going and getting this systemized in a good manner. So I can come in and have of course, feedback to it and come with my ideas. And it's an open dialogue. Uh, and it's open dialogue with also with Victor as the CEO, who's the responsible design. So as of today, uh, looking into the roadmap, uh, we are now uh, three people working on that. So there's me, the CEO, it's the CPO, uh, and the CDO. And we three together work on, but no question asked, it's owned by the CPO. But we have this, yeah. And that goes back to, you know, the open dialogue in the company, but also, you know, to play on each other's uh, skill set and experiences. And my second question was to do with your role as CEO. As CEO, and you've got skin in the game, not just bonuses or whatever else you get in enterprise, you've got your own money invested and reputation invested. You have to make a lot of the biggest decisions that the company faces and there are various people, investors, employees, 
your C-suite trying to influence you, not untowardly, you know, not with any mal, you know, malintent, but trying to influence the direction that you take and the decisions that you make. You mentioned saying no. You have to say no to features at that level sometimes because they don't fit with what you've agreed and what's important. As the CEO, how do you say no, whether it's directly or indirectly, to people that want things from you or from the company that you believe are not the right things at the moment? What I have learned at least, uh, or the way I do it, is yes, I say no. But it's so important to take the time also to tell the story behind why you say no. Because then you have a dialogue. Because just saying no doesn't solve anything. Because when somebody's coming with an idea, they probably also have a story behind that. So what's most important is sit down, because I'm super interested. If they come with that, that's, that's awesome. Especially something we haven't thought of, because then I'm all ears. Is it something we missed? Has something happened? What's going on here? And then you hear the story and go like, and then you can answer back in a polite way. That's awesome. But you know what? We did some iteration of this back then, and this was our result. And usually I go like, ah, okay, so you have thought of that. So you have looked into it. Yes. Ah, okay. Thank you for that. And I also learned that most of those who come with this is because maybe they're worried that we missed something or they didn't get the, <laughs> didn't get the memo or they didn't get, didn't get the story. Uh, but then, because we do so truly work on what we do, we potentially almost have at least an answer or a description of why we're not doing that because we've been through the process ourselves. I think that's that's the, that's the key thing. I think that's a really important point that you've made and the willingness to be open to learning something new, even if the answer is still no. Jonas, I'm just mindful of time. I've got one final question for you before we bring the show down to a close. And this is tapping into something that I feel that we're all guilty of, which is talking ourselves out of doing something that breaks with the life that we've currently been leading, doing something new, doing something meaningful, something that might not work, like starting a company, for example, or writing a book or making a career change. So what is the story that you've told yourself in those moments when you've faced those kind of decisions, whether to start Nomono or not? What story has helped you to feel confident in embracing the risks that you've taken on? I think for me, it's like, I usually think, what's the worst that can happen? And usually not much, I would say. I mean, it, it goes back to, I mean, we can be very philosophical here, but it goes back to life. Uh, and as long as you're healthy and you have your family and everything, I mean, uh, you can take a lot of risk. And I also see this is, this is interesting. So, uh, on the private side, took much more risk as a young gun versus an <laughs> old man now. But 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 on on the work related thing, I think I take more risk now than I took when I was younger. So for me personally, I see a shift, and I think the risk taking I do now is um, I'm not saying I'm getting old and wise, uh, but at least you have learned a lot. I think over the years, I think I think I more regret taking too little risk than taking too much on, on the work life side. I, I, when I look back, there are certain times where I potentially would have taken bigger risk than I did. And I never regret things, but there's certain, <laughs> certain times back in the time where I, mm, 
I shouldn't have paid off the loan on the house. I should have used that money to invest in the company I was building because that would put me in a much more financially better position now. But that goes back to risk-taking. At that time, I would lower my life risk by having paid the loan on the house because if shit is the fan, I still can live in my house. I don't have to move with the kids and everything. So I know why I did that. Back to calculate the risk. And of course, it's always easy to look in the rear mirror and go like, hmm, should I not, should I use the money to invest instead? But uh, yeah, that's... Uh... Mm, the future is unknowable. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, lucky that. I mean, it would be pretty boring if you knew what's going to happen in the future. I think that's the key thing. The unknown. That's... <laughs> That's where the interesting stuff yeah. happens, right? <laughs> Jonas, this has been a great conversation. Plenty of interesting ground covered and things for designers, researchers and product people to consider and budding entrepreneurs. Thank you for so generously sharing your stories and insights with me today and all the very best to you and your team as you build Nomono. Thank you, Brad. Looking forward. All good. Now, Jonas, if people want to connect with you or want to keep up to date with what you and the team at Nomono are doing, what is the best way for them to do that? It's just to follow on Nomono's webpage, nomono.co. Perfect. Thanks, Jonas. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything we've covered will be in the show notes, including where to find Jonas, Nomono, and all of the things that we've spoken about. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management and the odd entrepreneur, don't forget to leave a review on the podcast. Those are really helpful. Subscribe. And if you feel there's someone that you know that would get value from these conversations about business, design, product management, research at depth, then please pass the podcast along to them. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search for Brendan Jarvis. There's a link to my profile at the bottom of the show notes on YouTube and on the podcast platforms as well. Or head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey!